Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Our Lottie Moon Christmas offering this year is upcoming. You have given some of you already through our tithes and offerings weekly. You can give Christmas Eve as well. And let me just remind you of our Christmas Eve service at 5 o'clock in here, the traditional candlelight service. If you have young children, thank you, you can go into the fellowship hall. We do a children's service as well with no live flame on the candles. So that's important to understand if you have little children. And they can be loud and noisy and enjoy the time in there. So I'll invite you to be with us Christmas Eve at 5 p.m. either in here for the candlelight service or in the fellowship hall for the children's service. And remind you just to pray about your gift to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Every penny that we give goes toward international missions. So you be in prayer about that. Let's pray and then we'll begin together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning of song and of prayer and, and Lord, a time of, of worship and, and now a time of study as we open the truth of your word. I pray you would speak to us very clearly. Lord, I pray you would just speak through your text, Lord, that we would be able to understand and comprehend your words, Father, but then through the power of the Holy Spirit, we'd be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by reading a quote from the website Gospel for Asia. I think we actually have it on the screen. It paints a picture of how so many people in our world live currently. Here's the quote. Rapidly growing slums with millions of people living in extreme poverty and struggling for survival are a huge problem for South Asia's major cities. Up to 25% of the population of these urban areas live in slums. Thousands arrive daily from rural areas in search of jobs and of a better life, only to become trapped in desperation and hopelessness. Open sewage Polluted water, lack of health care, illiteracy, superstition, and diseases such as tuberculosis and AIDS are just some of the threats all around them. Every day is a new battle to somehow find a job or keep the one they have as a laborer, a porter, a sweeper, or a house servant. If that's not possible, they must resort to begging, scavenging, or prostitution to be able to eat. If they get too sick or too old to work, there is no social agency to help them survive. But whenever the love of Christ is shared, people find new hope and a future in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most of the people that live in those slums have no other option. They don't have the opportunity for advancement. They don't have the opportunity for a good job. They don't really have the opportunity to move out. And so they live in a world of poverty, of desperation. And in many cases, they live in a world of hopelessness. Now, I've said most of the people because there are a small percentage of people that live in those slums by choice. As hard as it might be for us to understand, there are missionaries 
that actually walk into those slums on a daily basis and minister to those people. And there are some missionaries, some believers, who have actually moved into the slums to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those that live there. Now, could you imagine stepping out of the comfort of your life, (laughs) of all that you have, of all that you've been given... And willingly making the decision to live in the worst conditions imaginable. Now some of you are probably thinking, Adam, it's three days before Christmas. And you're starting by reading to us a quote about the slums in Asia. Didn't you have a Christmas story you could read? Or something about an angel you could talk about? Well, here's why I begin with that story. Because when those missionaries walk into the dirty, grimy, polluted slums, it's a picture of exactly what Christ did for us. Right? Because he stepped down out of heaven. In all of its glory, all of its beauty, all of its splendor, all of its comfort. And he chose... To dwell among us. John 1.14 says it like this. The word, that's Christ, became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Emmanuel, God with us. That's why we celebrate Christmas. So we're going to examine a text this morning that's going to not only point to the Christmas story, but it's going to help us understand the glory and the grace of Christ. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Now I had intended, just to be honest with you guys, I had intended this week to preach Luke chapter 2. I kind of set out a few weeks ago my schedule for preaching and, and where I wanted to be and what I wanted to preach and... I have a board in my study that I have the next, you know, probably 15 or 20 weeks calendar and the, the kind of the text that I want to preach. And I had Luke 2 for this week. And I got into my study Monday morning early and I sat down and I started praying as I try to do every Monday morning. And as I prayed, I just felt the Lord kind of convict my heart that I didn't need to preach from Luke chapter 2. Instead, I needed to preach from Isaiah chapter 7. And so I spent a few minutes praying and I got up from prayer and I walked over to my bookshelf. I've got a, a, a bookshelf full of commentaries. And I pulled the commentary in Isaiah. And I opened it up. And guess what? I opened right up to Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. <laughs> okay, Lord. <laughs> if you say so, this is what I'll do. So we're going to study this morning Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to focus on verse 14. But let me give you some background before we delve into our passage this morning. Isaiah chapter 7 is about King Ahaz. Now King Ahaz is a very wicked king of Israel. Judah, if we were to be precise. And King Ahaz is one of these sorts of kings that wasn't interested in listening to the things of the Lord. He didn't follow the Lord. He didn't want to serve the Lord. He didn't listen to the prophets of the Lord. In fact, Isaiah, probably the greatest Old Testament prophet in history, came to Ahaz and said to him, I've got a word from the Lord. And Ahaz wouldn't listen to him. Now, I want to stop just for a moment in this background and take a little side trip just for fun. It's just something interesting I want to do. So hold your place in Isaiah. Just for a second, if you've got your Bibles, and flip to Matthew chapter 1, just for a second. Matthew chapter 1, verse 9. 
Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Christ. It kind of works us down through history, the lineage of David, and eventually on down into Jesus Christ himself. Matthew chapter 1, verse 9 says this, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. That's the same Ahaz of Isaiah chapter 7. So here's the point. Ahaz was in the direct line of Jesus Christ, a very wicked, a very ungodly king. Now, here's a little side note truth you need to take home with you. God can use anybody for his glory. (laughs) Even a wicked king that didn't want to have anything to do with the way of the Lord. So the next time you lose hope that God can't work in that person's life, you remind yourself that, in fact, he can So Ahaz was a wicked king who wasn't interested in following the will of the Lord and he was faced with a great invasion. In fact, these two warring armies had come against him and they were much more powerful than he was and they were surely going to defeat him and so he wasn't quite sure what to do. And so the Lord gives Isaiah a word and the Lord says to Isaiah, go to King Ahaz, comfort him, tell him it's going to be okay, I'm going to take care of him, I'm going to provide for him and King Ahaz doesn't want to listen. He's not interested in hearing from the Lord. He's not interested in hearing from Isaiah. And so the Lord kind of takes another step. He says, okay, okay. If he's not going to listen, then tell him to ask me for a sign. Ask me for anything and I'll do it to prove to him that I'm going to take care of him. So we see in verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. In other words, just ask me for a big sign. Ask me for whatever you want, as as magnificent and as powerful and as incredible as you want it to be. Ask me for this sign. I'll give you this sign. I'll prove to you that I am the Lord and I'm going to provide for you. Ahaz doesn't want any part of it. In fact, he kind of makes himself seem spiritual in verse 12. He says, I'm not going to ask the Lord. I will not put the Lord to the test. What we see as we read through this passage and understand who he was, it didn't really have anything to do with him not wanting to put the Lord to the test. He didn't trust the Lord. He didn't believe the Lord. He didn't listen to the Lord. And so now we come to verse 14. One of the greatest and clearest prophecies concerning Messiah found in all the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This will be our focal passage this morning. Therefore... The Lord himself said, or therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. In other words, the Lord says, Ahaz, if you're not going to ask me for a sign, I'll just give you one. If you don't trust me enough to ask me to do something for you, I'll just kind of take matters into my own hands and I'll give you a sign. And here's the sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. We'll stop there. Probably the clearest prophecy of the future Messiah found anywhere in the Old Testament. There's a lot of theology tied up in this verse. And as I sat down this week and studied through this and tried to figure out how I wanted to divide it up and how I wanted to kind of attack it and describe it and understand it, I thought, you know, maybe the easiest way to do it is to take it as it's written and divide it into kind of three simple parts and figure out what we can learn about each part. So we're going to do that. Here's part number one. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The Lord wanted Ahaz to understand his power. 
The Lord wanted Ahaz to understand his glory. The Lord wanted Ahaz to understand that he was, in fact, the Lord and can do anything he says he would do. Here's the thing about the Lord you need to understand. The Lord at all times, in all circumstances, in all situations, is always going to bring glory to himself. That's what the Bible teaches. In good times, in bad times, in triumphs, and even in tragedies, the Lord is going to bring glory to himself. And so the Lord says to Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign In order to bring glory to myself, I'm going to show you that one day this child is going to be born. Now, this is not the first sign the Lord has ever given to display his glory. In fact, if you were to spend some time reading through the Old Testament, you would see that there are numerous occasions when the Lord gives a sign to someone to demonstrate his power. Gideon is one example. Some of you remember the story of Gideon and all that Gideon accomplished, but Judges chapter 16 Verse 7, the Lord has spoken to Gideon and has called Gideon. And the Bible says in verse 17, Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then give me a sign that it really is you talking to me. In other words, Lord, if this is really you, if you really are going to use me, if you're really going to direct me, then give me a sign. And we know the story. Gideon says, well, I'll throw out this fleece or this blanket. If it's wet in the morning and everything else around it is dry, I'll know that it's you. And so he gets up and the fleece is wet. He says, Lord, I kind of trust you, but can I ask you for one more sign just to be sure? I want to throw the fleece out again. And this time, I want the fleece to be dry and everything around it to be wet. And it's exactly what happened. And so Gideon trusted the Lord and the Lord did amazing things through Gideon. You may remember the story of Genesis chapter 9 after the flood. God spoke to Noah in verse 12 and 13 and he said, This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The Lord says, I'm going to give you this rainbow and every time you see it, you remember me. You remember the covenant I gave you. That's the sign that I'm going to show you to know my faithfulness. I remember the star of Bethlehem. Many of you have read and studied that star. You remember the Magi said to King Herod when they came to worship, they had seen the star in the east. It was a sign for them. They knew and they saw it that Christ had been born. We see these instances over and over and over of the Lord providing a sign to demonstrate his glory. Now signs to us today are a little bit different, aren't they? Signs for us oftentimes alert us to something important. Maybe you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says speed limit 35 miles an hour. You're alerted to the fact that if you're not going 35 miles an hour, maybe you need to slow down. Or if you're like our family, your wife is alerted to the fact to tell you that you're not going 35 miles an hour and you need to slow down. Maybe you see street signs with names and you're alerted to the fact that I need to change direction. I need to turn down this street. Or maybe you see these signs that advertise things and you're alerted to the fact that maybe you need to go buy something. There's something you're interested in purchasing. For me, anytime I'm driving around town and I see work being done somewhere, maybe an area's been cleared off and they begin to grade it, I start asking myself the question, I wonder if they're going to build something there. And what I start doing over the next few weeks, every time I drive by, I look for what the sign that goes up to says something's coming. I'll never forget when they built the Home Depot right here across from the mall. Some of you may remember this. Well before they ever built the Home Depot, there was a sign that went up that said Home Depot coming. You remember? That was an exciting day for Troop County. Why? Home Depot's coming, y'all, right? 
It's a big one. I went home excited to tell my wife Home Depot's coming. It's going to be a big, nice store. I think about signs and how they announce things to us and how they're important to us. But here's the thing we need to understand. Signs, as exciting and as important as they might be, when the Lord gives you a sign, it's often life-changing, isn't it? And so here's the question so many people ask in our context, in our world today. Does the Lord still give us a sign? Lord, will you still speak to me? Are you still interested in speaking clearly to me? I have so many conversations with people. And they don't always phrase it like this, but oftentimes it kind of boils down to this. Adam, just help me understand what the Lord's calling me to do. Help me understand how to make this decision based on the truth of Scripture. Help me understand maybe what the Lord would have me to do or say or act in this situation. And so we ask ourselves the question, does the Lord still give us signs today to guide us? Well, I would argue that the Lord still gives us signs to help us understand what to do. But let me kind of tell you what I mean. I think so many people as they live their lives and they come to a major decision or a struggle in their life and they say something like this, Lord, I'd like for you to give me a sign that this is what I need to do. I want you to give me something amazing, Lord. I want it to be very obvious. I want it to be very clear. I want you to put a sign in the heaven or let somebody come say something to me or do this or show me this. And the Lord may do those things. But I think there's some clear signs that he gives us day after day after day that we should follow. Here's one of the signs. God gives us his word, doesn't he? See, the thing about the Old Testament people that sometimes we forget is that they didn't have the truth of the word of God like we have it. They had possibly one scroll, more than likely one portion of one scroll, and people, individual people didn't own those scrolls. Maybe the local body of believers owned one scroll. And so you read oftentimes in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, when people would gather together, they would gather together so somebody could read the scroll. Why? Because there was only one copy. We've been blessed to live in a time and a civilization and a culture that gives us the entire Bible in one volume. You need to understand historically that for the vast majority of history, people didn't have this. Really since the 1600s, we've had this. Since the invention of the printing press, now we have every book, all 66 books of God's Word in a volume that we can put on a shelf or carry with us. And some of us even have it on our phones now, right? If you're looking for a sign from the Lord, why don't you begin in His Scripture? Because it's His Word, it's His truth, it's His direction for our life. The Lord has also given us the Holy Spirit. People of the Old Testament didn't have the value of the Holy Spirit like we do. The Holy Spirit didn't invade the hearts of men and women until Pentecost. And you can read that story in the book of Acts. But for thousands of years, people following the Lord, they didn't have the Holy Spirit like we have for guidance and for counsel and for wisdom. We have the opportunity today to pray directly to the Lord. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. You may remember the story of Christ when he died. The Bible says that the veil in the temple that separated the common area of the temple and the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Why? It gave people the access for the first time ever to pray directly to God. They didn't have to go through a priest anymore. They didn't have to go through the sacrificial system. Micah 6.8 says this. He has shown you, O mortal. This is a very interesting text. He has shown you, O mortal... What is good? And what does the Lord require of you? You want to know the Lord's will for your life? To act justly, to love mercy, 
and to walk humbly with your God. I believe, and I believe this with all my heart, if we spent more time focusing on our walk with God and trying to walk closer to the Lord, we would see His signs a lot more clearly in our lives. So many people want that amazing sign from heaven and they never take the time to pick up the Word of God. So many people want that incredible sign of how they should live and where they should go and they never seek the Holy Spirit for guidance. Some people want that sign of exactly how their life should turn out and decisions they should make and they spend very little time in prayer. I think the Lord has given us signs in His Word and through His Spirit and through prayer. And I would encourage you, if you're seeking a sign from the Lord, you ought to begin there because the Lord says in Isaiah 7, I'm going to give you a sign. But now let's look at what the sign is. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. So here's kind of the second part. The virgin will give birth to a son. Now there's some very, very, very important biblical truth in that one little section of verse 14. One of the things that we learn from this text is that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. He was 100% God, he was 100% man. You say, that's a hard concept for me to understand. It is a hard concept. But it's very clearly taught all through Scripture. Wayne Grudem, who's a very well-known theologian, says it like this. God in his wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother. And his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Now you know as well as I do that modern critics attack the Christmas story oftentimes at this point, don't they? They say, well, that's not really possible for Mary to give birth like that. Nobody really believes that. No other human being in history has ever been born like that. It's it's not physically possible. And in fact, unfortunately, there are Christian leaders and Christian pastors who have attacked this doctrine. And they've said it's very difficult for us to understand, can it really be true? But I believe... That if we change the foundation, if we fail to believe the foundation of how Christ was born, it drastically affects his life and it drastically affects all he did for us. And so I think the way that Christ was born is important enough for us to defend. And so I want to take just a couple of minutes helping you understand why it's important that we defend this doctrine of the virgin birth. Here's the first reason. Because the Bible says it's true. (laughs) That ought to be enough, shouldn't it? I mean, as followers of Jesus Christ, if the Word of God says it, we ought to believe it. We've seen it already in Isaiah 7, 14. It's very clear. The Gospel of Matthew affirms it. The Gospel of Luke affirms it. And we need to be very careful here. And I want to challenge you, not just on this text, but on any text. If you find yourself as a believer, picking and choosing which text you're going to believe, you're walking on thin ice. It's very dangerous. It's not our call to choose which ones are correct and which ones are incorrect. It's our calling as a follower of Jesus Christ to have faith in what the Lord says. Now, we may not understand it. We may not even fully be able to explain it to an unbeliever, but we need to believe it ourselves. And when the Bible says it's true, it's true. Here's another reason that we ought to defend this truth, because it points to the supernatural nature of Christ's birth. No one else in history was born like this. 
It's interesting, if you study the life of Christ, he had a supernatural birth at the beginning, and he ended with a supernatural resurrection and ascension, didn't he? I mean, his life was bookended by these two incredible events, unlike anything else we've ever seen in history, and it points to the truth that he wasn't like a mere mortal. He wasn't simply a human being. He was from heaven. And he claimed, came with a very clear purpose. Here's another reason we need to defend it. Because it points to the truth that humans could not produce one that would take away the curse from Genesis chapter 3. We just couldn't produce that. We read about and we study and we've seen the curse from Genesis chapter 3. I read last week, Genesis 5, when Noah's father, Lamech, looked at Noah and said, maybe this will be the one to remove the curse. And we've seen that it's been from day one a process of the Lord buying back and redeeming his people unto himself. But the birth of Christ proves that we, because we're sinful, could not produce a person that could relieve the curse. We couldn't produce a person that would allow us to be saved from our sinfulness. Jesus had to come to the earth for that reason. I think maybe another important reason that we should defend this truth is because it points again to the fact that God had a plan for our salvation. It wasn't a last-minute decision. It wasn't as if the Lord woke up one morning and said, you know, I think this girl and this child are going to be the ones I choose. We see in our study from Scripture that God had a plan from eternity past to redeem His people back to Himself. And Isaiah, written 700 years before the birth of Christ, clearly prophesied that Jesus Christ would come, be born to the Virgin Mary, and would be our Savior. It's a picture, again, that we see of God's faithfulness, of God's hope, of God's plan. So Jesus Christ was fully human. We see that in his birth, but he wasn't just human. Look again at Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. There's a picture of his humanity. And will call him Emmanuel. Here's the third truth. You will call his name Emmanuel. Now Emmanuel, as so many of you understand and have studied, means God with us. I believe there are so many prophecies in the Old Testament. We've studied a lot of those and I've pointed those out to you. But I believe personally this is the most compelling prophecy of them all. Here's why. No other person in history has or can be referred to Emmanuel, God with us. It's interesting because when I study these texts, a lot of times I'll read commentaries that kind of are in favor of the way that we view it. But sometimes I'll read competing commentaries and people that disagree with it because I'm interested in their perspective as well. And I read a couple of commentaries this week that kind of challenged whether or not this was speaking of Messiah, challenged whether or not Isaiah 7, 14 was looking ahead to who Jesus Christ was going to be. But the interesting thing about the way that they wrote these commentaries is that they had all sorts of reasons why it wasn't Jesus or why it wasn't pointing to Messiah until they came to that word Emmanuel. And that's hard to get past. It's hard to take the word Emmanuel, which very clearly means God with us, and write it off as referring to anyone else. See, the truth of the word of God is that not only was Jesus fully human, Jesus was fully God. And we see that all through Scripture. John 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. We need to be careful in the world that we live in because there are people and there are groups of people that would argue that Jesus, in fact, wasn't fully God. I had the opportunity a few weeks ago, and some of you have had this opportunity. I had had a group of Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house. And they knocked on our door one Saturday morning and and it wasn't a good time for me. I was really in the middle of something. I said, guys, I, I just don't have time. But if you'll come back, I'll talk to you, I promise. I didn't expect them to come back. A couple of weeks later, they knocked on the door. They were back. About two hours later, if you'd driven by my house, I didn't, I, I didn't ask them in. We stood out by my truck, and I went and got my Bible, and probably for two hours we sat and kind of debated, and that's pretty much what it was, and we talked. And the thing I always do when they come to my house, I always start with Christ. Who is Christ? That's where you always need to go. Because they have a different view of Jesus. They don't believe Jesus was fully God. It doesn't matter kind of what you show them or what you take them to. They sometimes change the text, and sometimes they'll have a clever little argument for the truth of what they believe. But it's interesting to me because this idea of Jesus not being fully God has been around for hundreds of years. It's not new. In fact, if you're a historian, you could read about Arius. Arius lived in the 300s, and he taught that Jesus was a created being and wasn't fully God. The Council of Nicaea 325, which is one of the first Christian councils of bishops that gathered together, they called Arius a heretic. And from that point forward, the body of believers... The body of Christ, the church universal as a whole around the world has believed and argued that Jesus was fully God, as as the scripture says. Because if you study the word of God, if you study the scripture, you see time and time again that Jesus is referred to as God. Jesus himself claims to be God. John chapter 10 verse 30 says this, Jesus speaking to Jewish people. He says, I am the Father, I and the Father are one. Now some people have said, well that just means they were one in what they believed and one in their thought process and and one in what they were trying to accomplish. But listen how this verse plays out, verse 31. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Now listen to their response. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied. But for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. See that? Jesus claimed to be God. I'm reminded of the story in Mark chapter 2. When Jesus is preaching to the crowd of people, and there's so many people surrounding Jesus that they can't get into him, and there's a man who can't walk, and some of his friends want to take him to Jesus. You remember the story. And because he's surrounded, they literally can't get to him. They go up on the roof of the building. You remember? And they begin to cut the roof away and they begin to remove the tile. And I I just kind of think about what that must have been like if you're a Sunday school teacher or if you've ever taught in front of a group of people. Or I think about sometimes when I preach, if I were standing here preaching, all of a sudden some of the ceiling tiles started to kind of collapse. And the roof started to fall in and we're all looking and all of a sudden this man gets lowered down to the ground in front of Christ. And the Bible says in Mark 2 verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now listen to this. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Now, listen to the question he asks. Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat, 
and walk. Now, the easiest thing for Jesus to say is your sins are forgiven. And it's easy to say that. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So he got up, he took his mat, he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. We see time and time and time again Christ displaying his deity, Christ displaying his glory, Christ displaying his power through miracles by raising people from the dead, by causing the blind to see, by causing the lame to walk. We see the truth of the scripture borne out over and over again that Jesus was not only fully man, but Jesus was fully God. You know, when this prophecy was written, Isaiah chapter 7, the people of Israel were living in a very dark time. They had a very wicked king who wasn't interested in following the will of the Lord. They had a very wicked king who wasn't interested in listening to what the prophets said. They were under the threat of invasion. They had turned from the Lord. It was a very dark moment in their history. But in the midst of all that darkness, in the midst of all that hopelessness, the Lord planted a seed, a seed of hope, a seed of truth, a seed of faithfulness that one day, even in the midst of great darkness, even in the midst of great hopelessness, Messiah would come. I want to finish this morning by reading from a very famous hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by Charles Wesley, 1739. And we sing this, we've sung it a thousand times. But I want to end by just listening to the words of this incredible old Christmas song, this great hymn. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark! The herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Christ by heavens, Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come. Offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this prophecy, again, written hundreds of years before your birth. It's just so clear. Paints a picture of exactly who Christ was going to be, Lord. And it just shows us in the midst of despair and hopelessness, there is truth. And there is hope. And there is glory. So, Father, I pray that we would take what we've learned this morning. We would understand even more clearly, Lord, your call. Lord, the call that you've placed upon our life to be salt and light. To be an example. To understand what Christ did for us. To understand what Christ gave for us, Father. And I pray that we would see that no matter where we are in our lives, no matter what darkness surrounds us, in Christ there is hope. And in Christ there is light. Be with us, Lord, this Christmas season. Help us to serve you. Help us to love you. Help us to bring you honor and glory in all the things we say and do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand.
I'm going to give you the opportunity if you want to come and pray at the altar. If you want to repent of your sins and accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or you want to join this church now. This is your time as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.